the vapor of it all It's a chasing of the wind The powers of the earth So pale and thin We will set our hearts on you Welcome to Trinity Heights Church. My name is Eric, and here we are at last in the final sermon in the seemingly endless Mountain of Salt City of Light series. Uh, last week we heard from our good friend Chris Lawrence, who preached on Jesus' words, do not judge. And after this service, Chris and I were chatting a bit and catching up, and he told me a story about his wife, Naomi. Recently, Naomi was out shopping for groceries when she heard someone screaming at the top of their lungs. She turned a corner to see a mother yelling at her kids, just laying into them. Everyone in the store had stopped dead and stood silently watching, hoping that the situation didn't turn violent. And Naomi watched for a second, as along with the others, and then compelled by something, walked up to the woman and said, I thought you might like a hug. And immediately the woman stopped yelling, turned to Naomi and embraced her. And with the whole store watching in silence, Naomi and the woman stood there for a while, holding each other both, crying. Finally, the woman stepped back and spoke to Naomi briefly. And one of the things that she said was, other people just say I'm a terrible mother. They hear me yelling at my kids and they say that I'm a bad mom. And that's the difference, isn't it? When we allow the Sermon on the Mount to take root and we hear Jesus' words, do not judge, love your enemies, blessed are the peacemakers, and we go out and do something as simple as shop for groceries, these words and teachings break through and slip into the violence and chaos of our world. And that's when we begin to see glimpses of the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. And that's why we've taken our time with this sermon series, this Sermon on the Mount series, to allow these words to sink in. It's been a 10-week journey, and of course, the next, uh, next week, we'll be gathering here again for our mezzanine, which will take the form of a roundtable discussion and give you all the chance to hash things out once and for all and discuss everything we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount over these last two and a half months. If I'm being perfectly honest, it does strike me as somewhat strange standing up here this morning speaking. Never in my life uh, as a teenager or a college student or even in most of my years here in the city would I have ever predicted that I would be anywhere near a pulpit. As some of you know, I was raised as a missionary kid in South Africa. Both of my parents are ordained ministers and both are counselors and currently live and work in Kathmandu, Nepal. But at the age of 16, I decided to become a painter. I didn't want anything to do with the family business and in 2009, uh, 2009 my wife Megan and I moved to New York City with our son Elliot who was two at the time and nine months after we moved our son Reese was born and I don't think I've ever been so stressed in my entire life. <laughs> uh, we were new to the city, we had very little money 
and we were caring for two small children, and on top of that, I'm an artist. During this time, I distinctly remember waking up in the middle of the night with bits of broken teeth in my mouth because I was so stressed, I was literally grinding my teeth into sand. And I think a large part of how Megan and I and the boys live our lives now has to do with trying to recover from the stress of that time, but that's a different conversation. Miraculously, everything worked out. We're still here. During our first year in New York, I was able to carve out a strange kind of hybrid existence as a ghost painter slash actual painter. For the past 13 years, I've made paintings for another artist. Yes, that is a painting. I also make my own paintings. And I'm represented by a gallery here in New York on the Lower East Side. I'm also very fortunate to be on staff here at Trinity Heights Church as a kind of creative director of sorts, which means I get to think a lot about aesthetic unity and how our Instagram account and our website and our podcast and our panel discussions might all better reflect our mission and vision as a community of Christians and skeptics here in New York City. But on top of that, occasionally I get to speak to you all, and I'm happy to be here this morning presenting the final sermon in the Mountain of Salt City of Light series. Maybe this can become a new thing, actually. I'll just let everyone else do the heavy lifting, Stephen, Brandon Epting, Chris Lawrence, and then I'll come in right at the end and say something arty, <laughs> and, and then I'll slip away and leave you all wondering how the heck we got here. <laughs> because it all started so well, didn't it? If you remember... Going all the way back to part one, Stephen spoke about how just before Jesus begins teaching, he goes up on a mountain. But in this case, a mountain isn't just a mountain. It's a deep theological symbol of God's intervention on behalf of humanity. We look back into the Old Testament at Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. We saw Elijah on Mount Carmel and, of course, the most epic sci-fi mountain intervention of all, Moses on Mount Sinai. And in each of these cases, the fate of Israel was hanging in the balance, their future was uncertain, and their very survival was in question. And then there's a mountain. And God intervenes. The story continues. And so we understand that when Jesus walks to the top of the mount and begins to speak, these same forces are at play. Humanity's future hangs in the balance, but God intervenes, this time in the form of a man who begins to say strange things like, blessed are the poor, do not judge, love your enemies. Then later we talked about how salt and light aren't just salt and light. Jesus calls us to be these things for sure, but we're not just called to add flavor to a flavorless world or spread the light of God in the darkness, all good things, but maybe just a little too one-dimensional because salt and light are actually ancient symbols of peace and reconciliation and promise. We mentioned the ancient Middle Eastern saying, there is bread and salt between us, meaning that two groups had come together, formed an alliance, and promised peace. And that gave an entirely new meaning to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to us, be salt and light. Be the living embodiments of peace and promise, binding people together rather than working to drive them apart. 
And so a continuous thread emerges in the Sermon on the Mount. A mountain isn't just a mountain. Salt and light aren't just salt and light. And finally, there's one last metaphor that comes right at the end of Jesus' sermon, and that brings us to our text today found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. After reading this, I had all these great ideas that I wanted to share with you. I wanted to tell you about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge uh, and the group of Irish immigrants called the Sandhogs, who back in 1872 were tasked with digging the bridge tower foundations, seen here. They had to go all the way down to bedrock, below the surface of the East River. They would dig night and day in things called caissons, effectively two enormous upside-down watertight wooden boxes which were sunk down to the riverbed on the Manhattan side and the Brooklyn side of the East River. Many of these sandhogs became ill, and a number of them died from back then what was called caissons disease, but is now known as the bends. After two years of digging, they finally struck bedrock 44 feet below the riverbed on the Brooklyn side, but the Manhattan side was a different story. After running a few tests, they realized that the bedrock was 107 feet below the surface of the riverbed. So after digging to a staggering depth of 78 feet, the order was given to stop digging for fear they would lose 100 more men to Quezon's disease. And so to this day, the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge rests on sand, while the Brooklyn side rests on rock. I wanted to tell you all of these things, but I realized it would probably uh, take too long. So I decided to scrap it and just tell you that you should all go out and read the book, The Great Bridge by David McCullough. Seriously, check it out, it's fantastic. But the final metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount is not a bridge, no, not quite. It's a house. Two houses, actually, one built on sand by the foolish builder and one built on rock by the wise builder. And Jesus deliberately uses these very specific images of houses, builders, strong and weak foundations, rock and sand to end his Sermon on the Mount, tying things up right at the end. But why this image of a house? Well, remember, a mountain isn't just a mountain. Salt and light aren't just salt and light. And a house isn't just a house. Well, if a house isn't just a house, then what is it? Well, according to St. Augustine, a house is a symbol for the personal spiritual life. And this is likely the most common way that believers in America understand this parable, considering how nicely it fits with our ideas of Western individualism and personal spirituality. And growing up, this was the version of the parable that I heard repeated over and over again. So on the one hand, in the case of the wise builder, 
If you follow Jesus' teachings and take his words to heart, then when trials come, as they always eventually do, we find ourselves rooted in all that is good. Our inner and our outer lives match up, and our spiritual foundations are firmly planted in lasting truth. We will not be shaken because we have aligned ourselves with God who offers us his deep reserves of love and peace. Or, on the other hand, you have the foolish builder who builds his house on the sand. We don't take Jesus' teachings to heart and instead present a false front that we use to get by in the world to navigate any and all relationships, but inside we're filled with unchecked greed or lust or a hunger for power, and anyone and anything around us becomes a means to an end. But the dissonance between our inner and outer lives is completely unsustainable, and the whole system we've set up is structurally unsound, and the trials of life come, as they always do, and leave us ruined, scattered, and shattered. This may sound like gloom and doom, but these images of disastrous scenarios, these aren't just hypotheticals. Uh, in fact, it, they kind of seem to be knit into the fabric of our universe. A very New York example of a house built on sand would be the story of Bernie Madoff, who at one time was the chairman of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange and a very well-respected uh, person in the field of finance. In 1960, he founded a penny stock brokerage, which eventually grew into Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, which in 2008 was the sixth largest market maker in S&P 500 stocks. And then that same year, Madoff was arrested for fraud and everything came crashing down because unbeknownst to almost everyone, the asset management unit of his firm was actually a massive Ponzi scheme. In fact, it was the largest Ponzi scheme in, the his in, in history worth about $64.8 billion. Madoff himself eventually confessed, calling his entire career one big lie. Madoff died in prison in North Carolina last year at the age of 82, but not before his son Mark Madoff had committed suicide. His son Peter Madoff was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and his son Andrew Madoff died of lymphoma due to a relapse that before his death, he himself attributed to the stress of the fallout over his father's crimes. I mean, we're talking about total financial, emotional, physical, and spiritual collapse. Madoff had built his company, his life, and the well-being of his family on lies and greed, and one day that entire reality just imploded. His reputation crumbled and his family suffered because a house isn't just a house. Our inner worlds, the desires for our heart, of our hearts, ripple out into reality and begin to shape and form our legacies and inform the structural integrity of the lives that we build. And that's just viewing the parable through Augustine's lens of personal spirituality. And there's nothing wrong with viewing the parable that way. In fact, we should view it this way. The problem is that we live in the Western world in the United States, where for as long as we can remember, being a Christian has meant embracing a private spirituality now and an escapist heaven later. But if we trace this headspace back to its origins, we find the Gnostic Christians who escaped persecution while other Christians were being fed to lions. Why? It's because no empire will bother with a group of, of people embracing private spirituality and escapism. 
But empires do take deep offense when a group of people begin to go around saying that someone different is now the true Lord of this world. And this is exactly what Matthew is saying when he writes about Jesus preaching from the mount. And that's why it's so important that we take our minds and our hearts and remove them from our Western context and align them with the minds and the hearts of first century Christians, or in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, align them with the first century crowds hearing Jesus' words for the first time. We deliberately leave behind our Western individualism and place ourselves into the stream of Jewish history. And it's only once we've done that that we can begin to understand the parable of the wise and the foolish builder more fully and on a more epic scale. So Jesus has just presented the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount, and at the very end of the sermon begins evoking the imagery of builders and houses. One house is destroyed while the other remains, and the crowd, fully immersed in the stream of Jewish history, hears Jesus saying these things and immediately begin to recall the ancient stories, the stories they've told their children and that they themselves have heard when they were children. You see, the crowd understands that a house isn't just a house because the stories they're thinking of are the old stories of David and Solomon and the building of the temple. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. Did I ever say to any of their rulers, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Every Jewish person in the crowd would have known that David had longed to build a house for God to dwell in, and yet God told him no, and gave the task of building the temple to David's son, Solomon. But that wasn't the end of the conversation. God also told David that he, the Lord, would establish the house of David, out of which would come a kingdom that would have no end. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Two houses, one destroyed, the physical temple built by Solomon, and the house of David, which God himself declares will endure forever. So the crowd listening to Jesus speak of two houses, the wise builder, the foolish builder, and then recalling the old stories, would have known that Solomon did build the temple and that this was a time when God's promises seemed to be fulfilled forever, but it had all gone terribly wrong. Kings had become corrupt, prophets had spoken lies, priests had committed abominations, most of the original 12 tribes were lost, and finally Babylon had overcome the rest, destroyed the temple, and taken the people into exile. The crowds would have also known that at this point in the history of Israel, it seemed that God had abandoned his people all together. After all, 
that they had been a part of the that had been a part of the original promise. If Israel abandoned God, then God would abandon them. The prophets at the time had interpreted this as a direct result of Israel's idolatry and sin. Israel had been kicked out of the land like Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden. And the crowds would have also known that it was promised that there would be a time of return, a time when God and Israel would get back together like the reconciliation of a divorced couple. When that happened, not only would Israel be restored, the temple rebuilt, and not only would God live in the temple once more, but the nations of the world would come to see what had happened and would abandon their idols and come to worship the one true God at last. This would be the climax of history. And this was not just a vague idea, but rather a very specific goal towards which all of creation was heading. And so if we're able, let's just for a moment take our hearts and minds out of our Western context and align them with the hearts and minds of the first century crowds gazing up at Jesus. We hear him speak about a house destroyed and a house that remains, and we begin to think that this sounds a lot like the story of the temple. But we're not thinking of the temple as any old empty cathedral, but rather fully embracing the belief that the actual creator of the universe, for reasons only known to himself, decided to take up residence in a building on the hill down the road, a true incarnation. And because our hearts and minds are aligned with the crowds, we look up and we turn our gaze back to Jesus and see that he's standing on his own hill, teaching with an authority that annihilates anything we've ever heard come from the teachers of the law or the temple. And Jesus, with that same overwhelming authority, says, do what I say. Follow my teachings, and you will build a house wisely, a temple that will not be destroyed. With an overwhelming authority, he says, allow my words to take root, and watch as my teachings break through into the violence and chaos of this world. The kingdom of heaven is coming, and if my words stay with you, then even now, even as you go about your daily lives, you will bridge heaven and earth together, and you will begin to see glimpses of the kingdom right now, right here on earth. As we leave this morning, Let's uh, consider the Sermon on the Mount. And I found a great quote by Wendell Berry, and he says, As I have read the Gospels over the years, the belief has grown in me that Christ did not come to found an organized religion, but came instead to found an unorganized one. He seems to have come to carry religion out of the temples, into the fields and sheep pastures, onto the roadsides and the banks of the rivers, into the houses of sinners and publicans, into the town and the wilderness, toward the membership of all that is there. Let us go out embracing the kingdom of heaven and the unorganized religion of Christ.